The Judge's Dilemma and the Prisoner's Distress Four men serving time in Israeli prisons recently asked to be released on parole. Their cases were heard by a board consisting of a judge, a criminologist, and a sociologist that periodically met for a day-long session to consider prisoners' appeals. There were certain similarities to the four cases. Each of the prisoners was a repeat offender, having served a previous term in prison for a separate offense. Each man had served two-thirds of his current sentence, and each would have been able to participate in a rehabilitation program if released. But there were also differences, and the board granted parole to only two of the four men. From the list of the four cases, try guessing which two men were denied parole and had to remain in prison. Case 1, heard at 8.50 a.m. An Arab-Israeli male serving a 30-month sentence for fraud. Case 2, heard at 1.27 p.m. A Jewish-Israeli male serving a 16-month sentence for assault. Case 3, heard at 3.10 p.m. A Jewish-Israeli male serving a 16-month sentence for assault. Case 4, heard at 4.25 p.m an Arab-Israeli male serving a 30-month sentence for fraud. There's a pattern to the board's decisions, but it's not one you'll find by looking at the men's ethnic backgrounds or crimes or sentences. In looking for it, you might keep in mind a long-running debate about the nature of the legal system. One traditional school of scholars treats it as a system of rules to be administered impartially, the classic image of a blindfolded lady justice weighing the scales. Another school emphasizes the importance of human foibles, not abstract rules, in determining verdicts. These legal realists, as they're known, are often caricatured as defining justice to be what the judge ate for breakfast. Now their definition has been tested by a team of psychologists led by Jonathan Lavav of Columbia University and Shai Danzinger of Ben-Gurion University. They reviewed more than 1,000 decisions made over the course of 10 months by judges who took turns presiding over the parole board of an Israeli prison system. Each judge, after hearing prisoners' appeals and getting advice from the criminologist and sociologist on the parole board, would decide whether to release the criminal on parole. By awarding parole, the judge could please the prisoner and the prisoner's family and save the taxpayers' money but there was also a risk that the paroled prisoner would go on to commit another crime. On average, each judge approved parole for only about one of every three prisoners, but there was a striking pattern to the decisions of all the judges, as the researchers found. The prisoners who appeared early in the morning received parole about 65% of the time. Those who appeared late in the day won parole less than 10% of the time. Thus, the odds favored the prisoner in our case one, who appeared at 8.50 a.m., the second case of the day, and he did in fact receive parole. But even though the prisoner in case four was serving the same sentence for the same crime, fraud, the odds were against him when he appeared, on a different day, at 4.25 p.m. Like most of the other prisoners who appeared late in the afternoon, he was denied parole. The change from the morning to the afternoon didn't occur at a steady rate, though. There were other striking patterns during the day. In mid-morning, usually a little before 
the parole board would take a break and the judges would be served a sandwich and a piece of fruit. That would replenish the glucose in their bloodstreams. Remember the studies about how children who skipped breakfast would suddenly start to behave and learn better after the mid-morning snack? The prisoners who happened to appear just before the break had only about a 15% chance of getting parole, which means that only one out of seven would get to leave the prison. In contrast, the ones who came right after the food break had around a 65% chance, about two out of three. The same pattern happened with lunch. At 12.30 p.m., just before lunch, the chances of getting parole were only 20%. But if you came up right after lunch, the chances were more than 60%. The prisoner in case two was lucky enough to be the first one to appear after the lunch break, and he did indeed receive parole. The prisoner in case three was serving the same sentence for the same crime, assault, and he also appeared in the afternoon, but later, at 3.10 p.m. Instead of being the first prisoner to appear after the lunch break, he was the twelfth, and he suffered the usual fate at that late hour. Parole was denied. Judging is hard mental work. As the judges made one decision after another, their brains and bodies used up glucose, that crucial component of willpower that we discussed earlier. Whatever their personal philosophy, whether they were known for being tough on crime or sympathetic to the potential for rehabilitation, they had fewer available mental resources to make further decisions. And so, apparently, they tended to go for the less risky choice, for themselves anyway. As horribly unfair as it was for the prisoner, why should he linger in jail just because the judge hadn't yet had his mid-morning snack, such bias is not an isolated phenomenon. It occurs naturally in all kinds of situations. The link between willpower and decision-making works both ways. Decision-making depletes your willpower, and once your willpower is depleted, you're less able to make decisions. If your work requires you to make hard decisions all day long, at some point you're going to be depleted and start looking for ways to conserve energy. You'll look for excuses to avoid or postpone decisions. You'll look for the easiest and safest option, which often is to stick with the status quo. Leave the prisoner in prison. Denying parole can also seem like the easier call to the judge because it leaves more options open. The judge retains the option of paroling the prisoner at a future date without sacrificing the option of keeping him securely in prison right now. Part of the resistance against making decisions comes from the fear of giving up options. The more you give up by deciding, the more you're afraid of cutting off something vital. Some students choose double majors in college not because they're trying to prove something or because they have some grand plan for a career integrating, say, political science and biology. Rather, they just can't bring themselves to say no to either option. To choose a single major is to pronounce judgment on the other and kill it off. And there's abundant research showing that people have a hard time giving up options, even when the options aren't doing them any good. This reluctance to give up options becomes more pronounced when willpower is low. It takes willpower to make decisions, and so the depleted state makes people look for ways to postpone or evade decisions. In one experiment, people were invited to choose which, if any, of several items they'd like to buy. 
the people whose willpower had been depleted by previous acts of self-control, were much more likely than the others to duck the decision by not buying anything. In another study, people were asked to imagine that they had $10,000 they did not need in a savings account. Then they were presented with an investment opportunity described as average risk and above average rate of return. That combination defines a good investment because usually risk and return rates are in step. When people were not depleted of willpower, most of them said they would make the investment. Depleted people, in contrast, said to leave the money where it was. The decision didn't make sense financially because they were essentially losing money by leaving it in the low-yield savings account, but it was easier than making a decision. This form of procrastination helps explain why so many people put off the biggest choice of their lives, picking a mate. In the middle of the 20th century, most people married by their early 20s. But then, more options opened for both sexes. More men and women stayed in school longer and pursued careers that took long preparation. Thanks to the birth control pill and changing social values, people could enjoy the option of having sex without deciding to get married. As more people settled in large metropolitan areas, they had more choices in potential mates and hence more options than ever to fear losing. For a column in 1995, Tierney did a semi-scientific survey to investigate a New York phenomenon, the huge number of intelligent and attractive people who complained that it was impossible to find a romantic partner. Manhattan had the highest percentage of single people of any county in America, except for an island in Hawaii, originally settled as a leper colony. What was keeping New Yorkers apart? Tierney surveyed a sampling of personal ads in the city magazines of Boston, Baltimore, Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. He found that singles in the biggest city, New York, not only had the most choices, but were also the pickiest in listing the attributes of their desired partners. The average personal ad in New York magazine listed 5.7 criteria required in a partner significantly more than second-place Chicago's average, 4.1 criteria, and about twice the average for the three other cities. As one woman in New York put it in her ad, not willing to settle, neither am I. She claimed to be someone who loves all New York has to offer, but her definition of all did not include any male New Yorkers who were not handsome, successful, over 5 feet 9, and between the ages of 29 and 35. Another New Yorker demanded a man over 5 feet 10 who played polo. A lawyer who listed 21 requisite qualities in his princess professed to be astonished to find himself unattached. That survey of personal ads was just an informal study. But recently, several teams of researchers have reached a similar conclusion from a far more rigorous analysis of people's romantic pickiness. They've monitored tens of thousands of people seeking love through either an online dating service or speed dating events. At the online dating service, customers filled out an extensive questionnaire about their attributes. In theory, that detailed profile should have helped people find just the right mate. But in practice, it produced so much information and so many choices that people became absurdly picky. The researchers, Gunter Hitch, and Ali Hortescu of the University of Chicago, and Dan Ariely of Duke, 
found that the online customers typically go out with fewer than 1% of the people whose profiles they check out. Romance seekers have much better luck at speed dating events, which are generally limited to a dozen or two dozen people. Each person spends several minutes talking to each of the potential partners. Then, all the participants turn in scorecards indicating which people they'd like to see again, and those with mutual interest are matched up. The average participant makes a match with at least one in ten of the people they meet, and some studies have found the ratio to be two or three in ten. Faced with fewer options and mates and an immediate deadline, the speed daters quickly pick out potential partners. But because the online seekers have so many choices, Arielli says, they just go on browsing. When you have all these criteria to consider, and so many people to choose from, you start striving for perfection, he says. You don't want to settle for someone who's not ideal in height, age, religion, and 45 other dimensions. Arielli further studied this reluctance to give up options by watching people play a computer game in which they earned real cash by opening doors to find rewards inside rooms. The best strategy was to open each of the three doors on the computer screen, find the one with the most lucrative rewards, and then stay in that room. But even after players learned that strategy, they had a hard time following it when an additional feature was introduced. If they stayed out of any room for a while, its door would start shrinking and eventually disappear, effectively closing the door permanently. That prospect so bothered players that they would jump back into a room to keep the door open, even though the move reduced their overall earnings. Closing a door on an option is experienced as a loss, and people are willing to pay a price to avoid the emotion of loss, Ariely says. Sometimes that makes sense, but too often we're so eager to keep options open that we don't see the long-term price that we're paying or that others are paying. When you won't settle for less than a perfect mate, you end up with no one. When parents can never say no to projects at the office, their children suffer at home. When a judge can't bring himself to make a hard decision about parole, he's quite literally closing the door on the prisoner's cell. Lazy choices. To compromise is human. In the animal kingdom, you don't see a lot of protracted negotiations between predators and their victims. The ability to compromise is a particularly advanced and difficult form of decision-making, and therefore one of the first abilities to decline when our willpower is depleted, particularly when we take our depleted selves shopping. Shoppers face continual compromises between quality and price which don't always change in the same proportions at the same time. Often, price goes up much faster than quality. A wine selling for $100 a bottle is usually better than a $20 wine. But is it five times better? Is a $1,000 per night hotel room five times nicer than a $200 per night room? There's no objectively correct answer. It all depends on your taste and your budget but the relative paucity of $100 wines in $1,000 hotel rooms indicates that most people don't find the extra quality worthwhile. Above a certain point, increases in price are not worth the gains in quality. Choosing that point is the optimal decision, but it requires the difficult task of figuring out just where that point is. When your willpower is low, you're less able to make these trade-offs. 
you become what researchers call a cognitive miser, hoarding your energy by avoiding compromises. You're liable to look at only one dimension, like price. Just give me the cheapest. Or you indulge yourself by looking at quality. I want the very best, an especially easy strategy if someone else is paying. Decision fatigue leaves us vulnerable to marketers who know how to time their sales, as was demonstrated by Jonathan Lavav, the Columbia psychologist, in experiments involving tailored suits and new cars. The idea for these experiments, like Jean Twenge's, also happened to come during the preparations for a wedding. At his fiancée's suggestion, Lavav visited a tailor to have a bespoke suit made and began going through the choices of fabric, type of lining, style of buttons, and so forth. By the time I got through the third pile of fabric swatches, I wanted to kill myself, Lavav recalls. I couldn't tell the choices apart anymore. After a while, my only response to the tailor became, what do you recommend? I just couldn't take it. Lavav ended up not buying any kind of bespoke suit. The $2,000 price tag eventually made that decision easy. But he put the experience to use in a couple of experiments conducted with Mark Heitman of Christian Albrecht's University in Germany, Andreas Hermann at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, and Sheena Iyengar of Colombia. One involved asking MBA students in Switzerland to choose a bespoke suit. The other was conducted at German car dealerships by discreetly observing customers ordering options for their new sedans. The car buyers, and these were real customers spending their own money, had to choose, for instance, among four styles of gear shift knobs, 13 kinds of tires and rims, 25 configurations of the engine and gearbox, and a palette of 56 different colors for the interior of the sedan. As they started picking features, customers would carefully weigh the choices. But as decision fatigue set in, they'd start settling for whatever the default option was. And the more tough choices they encounter early in the process, like going through those 56 colors to choose the precise shade of gray or brown for the sedan's interior, the quicker people got fatigued and settled for the path of least resistance by taking the default option. By manipulating the order of the car buyer's choices, the researchers found that the customers would end up settling for different kinds of options, and the average difference totaled more than 1,500 euros per car, about $2,000 at the time. Whether the customers paid a little extra for fancy tire rims or a lot extra for a more powerful engine depended on when the choice was offered, early or late, and how much willpower was left in the customer. Similar results were found in the experiment with custom-made suits. Once decision fatigue set in, people tended to settle for the recommended option. When they were confronted early on with the toughest decisions, the ones with the most options, like the 100 fabrics for the suit, they became fatigued more quickly and also reported enjoying the shopping experience less than if they started off with easier decisions before moving on to the tough ones. Sometimes shoppers get so tired of making choices that they simply stop buying. But clever marketers can often find ways to exploit decision fatigue, and you don't have to go any farther than your supermarket to see their strategy. After you navigate the aisles and deplete your willpower by choosing among thousands of nutritious foods and practical products, what greets you as you wait in line at the cash register? Gossipy tabloids and chocolate bars. Not for nothing are they called impulse purchases. 
It's no accident that the candy is presented just at the moment when your impulse control is weakest, and just when your decision-fatigued brain is desperate for a quick hit of glucose. Choose your prize. Suppose, as a reward for finishing this chapter, we offered you a choice of two checks that had been filled out and dated. One is for $100 and can be cashed tomorrow. The other is for $150 and cannot be cashed until a month from tomorrow. Which would you choose? To an economist, the now or later money question is a classic test of self-control. There are generally no reliable investments, at least not legal ones, that will increase your money by 50% in a single month. Unless you have a rare opportunity to double your money in a month or an immediate financial emergency and no other source of funds, you'd be better off turning down the $100 in quick cash and waiting a month to receive $150. Hence, in general, the right answer to the payment question is to take the larger, later reward. Being able to resist short-term temptations in favor of long-term payoffs is the secret not just to wealth, but to civilization itself. It took singular willpower for the first farmers to go out and plant seeds instead of treating themselves to an immediate meal. So why do their better-fed descendants grab the $100 now instead of waiting for the $150 in a month, as many people do in experiments? One reason is that it's another example of the irrational shortcuts taken by people whose self-control has been depleted by too many previous decisions or other exertions. A quick dose of glucose can counteract this short-term thinking, as researchers demonstrated by giving people a soft drink just before asking them to make choices between quick but small versus larger but later rewards. Another reason for choosing the quick cash emerged in an ingenious study by Margot Wilson and Martin Daly of McMaster University. These evolutionary psychologists began the experiment by asking young men and women to choose between a check dated tomorrow versus a check for a larger amount that could be cashed on a later date. Then, ostensibly as part of an experiment to measure preferences, the subjects were asked to rate photographs of people and cars. The photos of people were taken from hotornot.com, the website where people submit photos of themselves and are then rated for attractiveness on a 10-point scale. Some of the young men and women saw photos of the opposite sex who had already been rated on the website as very hot, above 9. Some of the participants saw not-hot photos, around 5. Other participants rated pictures of cars, with some seeing hot cars and others looking at clunkers. Then everyone was asked once again to make choices between getting an immediate reward versus a larger reward later, and the researchers compared the answers to see if looking at the photos had changed any of the subjects' preferences for rewards. The car pictures had no effect on the young men, and only a slight effect on some of the women. Women who saw the hot cars became a little more likely to opt for the quick reward. One might speculate that seeing the shiny sports car made the young women a bit more eager for instant gratification, but the change was so small that the researchers declined to draw any conclusions from it. The women in the experiment were even less influenced by looking at photos of men. Their decision-making didn't change after looking at either the hot men or the not-so-hot men. Nor did the men's decision-making change after looking at pictures of not-hot women. 
But there was one group that changed dramatically. Men who saw photos of hot women shifted toward getting an immediate reward instead of waiting for a larger payoff in the future. Apparently, the sight of an attractive woman makes men want cash right away. They focus on the present rather than the future. This effect is probably deeply rooted in the psyche and in the evolutionary past. Modern DNA research has revealed that most men in the past did not leave a line of descendants. Their odds of reproducing were only half as high as the typical woman's. For every prolific patriarch like Genghis Khan, there were lots of other men whose genetic lines died out. Men today are therefore descended from the minority of men who managed to reproduce, and their brains seem prime for a quick response to any opportunity to improve their reproductive odds. Other studies have shown that the sight of an attractive woman, but not an unattractive woman, activates the male brain's nucleus accumbens, which is connected to the part of the brain activated by rewards like cash and sweet-tasting foods. In the past, there might well have been some evolutionary advantage in going for a quick display of resources upon seeing an attractive female. Today, it might still be useful on occasions, especially if you think the woman's decision might be affected by your owning a hot car. Clearly, that's the strategy of marketers of upscale cars and other goods. Advertising agencies figured out long ago that men are more likely to splurge on a luxury product if it's shown next to a beautiful woman. But in general, nowadays this sort of short-term thinking is not a great strategy for life, not even for attracting resource-conscious mates. As Madonna advised in Material Girl, only boys who save their pennies make my rainy day. So if you are a male about to make any important financial decisions, focus on numerical figures, not female ones. And if you are an image-conscious executive whose willpower has already been depleted by making decisions all day long, you should definitely not make any plans for the evening or for anything longer term after scanning the photos at the Emperor's Club VIP.